Blog Talk Radio. Welcome one and all. This is Robert Rogers. I am the founder of Parkinson's Recovery, which actually began in the year 2004. Parkinson's Recovery is dedicated to provide information, resources, and support to individuals who currently experience the symptoms of Parkinson's as well as their family members. I host on this radio show routinely individuals who are healthcare professionals who know a lot about what it takes to reverse the symptoms of Parkinson's and also individuals who currently or at one time have had the symptoms of Parkinson's disease and talk about what they can actually do to reverse those symptoms. So the way I'm describing this is, Okay, the guests are either one or the other. Well, I've got a great surprise for you today. The guest I have today is a person who falls into both categories. I actually met Dr. John Coleman back, uh, it's been now 10 years ago, right at the beginning of when I launched my research program into figuring out what are the causes of Parkinson's symptoms and what can people do to address those causes. And all of a sudden, I kept asking the question, is there anybody out there in the universe who's actually succeeded in reversing their symptoms? And lo and behold, I saw an announcement of a presentation by Dr. John Coleman in the city of Tacoma, Washington, USA. And so Deborah and I both went to that symposium, and we had a delightful time to spend with Dr. Coleman over those three days of his presentations. And was it a spectacular presentation by an individual who in the mid-1990s experienced Parkinson's symptoms and decided he was going to figure out a way to reverse those symptoms. So I've known uh, John Coleman now for over 10 years, and I just want to say it's an honor and a privilege for me to be able to introduce him as a guest on the radio show today. So, John Coleman, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time out today to be a guest on the radio show. It's my absolute pleasure, Robin. I'm really pleased I can be here. Uh, I fondly remember our meeting 10 years ago in Tacoma and the time we spent together and with both you and Deborah, and it's been a very interesting and sometimes challenging 10 years, but uh, it's exciting. Life's always exciting. Now, those of you who are listening, some of you, of course, know John Coleman well. Others don't. You might have noticed from his accent that he does have an accent that's not quite from Brooklyn and not quite from Atlanta, Georgia, but rather from perhaps a place called Australia. Well, if that's your guess, you're dead right. So, John, tell us a little bit about yourself, other than the fact that you're from Melbourne, Australia. Well, um, I'm, I'm a bit insulted. You say I have an accent. Well, I don't think so. I think you have an accent. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Look, I, I am a proud Australian. Uh, I was born in 1943, and I've moved around a lot in Australia and I I had many jobs, finished school at 16 years old and I worked in a copper mine and I worked for Kodak, the photographic company. I worked in the musical instrument industry for many years. Um, I got married, had children, did all the normal things. Uh, Had some interesting adventures. My 
eldest boy died when he was 11 and uh, his mum and I and another couple started a family support charity here in Australia, which is uh, still thriving today, supporting families. Um, and then in 1995, after a series of other adventures, uh, I developed the symptoms of very advanced Parkinson's disease. Now, those of you who know the Hernan Yar scale, uh, if I say that my symptoms were at stage four, you'll understand that it was quite severe. Those who understand the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, uh, my score was 127 out of 199. So very debilitating. Uh, and I was offered the normal sort of therapy, so levodopa drugs and or dopamine agonists and uh, told to get my affairs in order and that I could never get well, etc. I chose to try to find a way to ease my symptoms. Uh, at that time, I had no thought of actually becoming symptom-free because I was told that was impossible. But I, I chose to try and improve my health, uh, primarily because I was on my own at that stage. I'd been divorced for some years. Uh, I had lost my money. Uh, so I needed to work and I needed to take care of myself. And so I looked for ways that could help me at least be functional. And the process took over three years. And eventually I did find ways that would support my body, uh, produce more dopamine, serotonin, glutamine, anandamide, and all the others of the 43 neurotransmitters involved when we develop symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And so I was symptom-free, and I've remained symptom-free since then. Now, you know, I do not consider myself cured, and uh, we may talk about that a bit later, but I do not believe in a cure. Uh, I, I saw a delightful cartoon the other day where there were two pigs at the foot of the bed saying about their friend, well, he's definitely cured, and their friend was a ham. So we know that we can cure... <laughs> we know we can cure ham and bacon and leather and plastic and concrete and glue. We can't cure people. We can't cure diseases. We can be healthy. We can recover. So since then, I've worked as a naturopath, um, helping people with Parkinson's, MSA, multiple sclerosis, motor neurone disease. And in the last uh, five or six years, uh, I've been working closely with people with chronic Lyme disease and co-infections, uh, primarily because we discovered that my wife has chronic Lyme disease, so uh, a family involvement there. So it's, it's been a very interesting adventure. Um, uh, my latest adventure is with cancer, and I'm in recovery from that. So it's uh, a pretty interesting life. What evidence is there, John Coleman, for the idea that Parkinson's disease is simply a set of symptoms rather than a distinct disease? Okay, so first we need to look at... Um, what 
evidence there is that anybody actually has something we can call Parkinson's disease. Now, I'm sure you all know that there is no definitive diagnostic test that will say somebody has Parkinson's. Now, that doesn't matter whether it's John Coleman or Alan Smith or Michael J. Fox or Muhammad Ali. There is nothing, no test that says definitely this is a disease we can call Parkinson's. That's number one. Uh, number two, there are a multitude of symptoms and symptom pictures that appear uh, when someone is ultimately diagnosed with Parkinson's. So it's not as if we have this discrete set of symptoms as we do with influenza, for instance, of you know, temperature, muscle aches, uh, runny nose, chest cough, etc. Uh, that set of symptoms says definitely influenza. We can do a blood test, find the virus, say, yep, that person has influenza. But when we talk about Parkinson's, we talk about people with a huge range of symptoms and often uh, incorrectly diagnosed for many years. Um, so there's a puzzle here. You know, how can a disease have this multitude of symptoms? We then have a look at what happens in families. If we, we're going to look at a cause, and we'll talk about causes a bit later, but in families where siblings have exactly the same experiences, environments, even when they're twins, we see that they may um, actually develop different so-called diseases. So if I, if I can give you a personal example, I have three siblings, so four children in my family. Same parents, similar upbringing, similar environment, similar toxic loads, and so on. So I am the only sibling who um, had early stage multi-system, um, early stage Parkinson's, i.e. in my younger years, in my 50s. Uh, my older sister developed an essential tremor, but ultimately developed throat cancer and died when she was 65. My older brother developed dementia and uh, was incarcerated at 65. Ultimately, he was very, uh, very late in his life diagnosed with Parkinson's, but that was very uncertain because he was on a whole cocktail of drugs that could cause Parkinson's symptoms. So we still don't know that he actually had Parkinson's. His primary challenge was dementia. I had a series of illnesses, um, rheumatic fever, then Parkinson's, then and multi-system atrophy, and, and now cancer. Um, and my younger sister, as I, I like to say lightly, got married three times and then became a real estate agent. Uh, but in fact, she developed an essential tremor and chronic hypertension. So despite very similar um, upbringings, influences and environments, we 
showed development of different diseases. Now, I believe they're all the same disease. I believe we all had the same disease. It was simply that that we displayed different sets of symptoms. Um, over the years, scientists, very clever people, have been looking for the gene, the Parkinson's gene. And, and I know people contact me and say, oh, I have the Parkinson's gene, and what should I do about it? Well, folk, I've got to tell you, there are over 53 genes involved in the development of symptoms that may be diagnosed as Parkinson's. And genes can change. Genes switch on and switch off. And that's all they are. They're just switches that, that create proteins or don't create protein. So there's a very wide range of symptoms. There's siblings with similar experiences developing different diseases. There's these ever-expanding genetic patterns. And we know that we don't have a treatment for a disease called Parkinson's. We can treat some of the symptoms, but we don't have a treatment for the disease. But when people deal with the influences that created that set of symptoms, they get well. So in my view and the view of many, many people cleverer than I am, Parkinson's disease, like all degenerative diseases, are sets of symptoms rather than discrete diseases. Stepping back then, what are the causes or processes that may lead to degeneration and diagnosis of a, quote, disease? Okay, well, we, we can group them into three large families of causes, and this is not my new idea, so um, you know, you know, nobody can make me famous for this, unfortunately. The, this is research that has been going on for many, 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 many years, uh, and unfortunately often been ignored. However, l let's look at them one by one. The first group is suppressed trauma in our early life. Now, um, I'm, everybody in their life has some form of trauma at some stage. And trauma in itself does not create disease because often we deal with that very well. That may be something like a motor vehicle accident and we're well cared for um, and, and we recover and we, we deal with the shock and etc and it doesn't have long lasting effects it may be the the loss of a sibling the loss of a friend the loss of a, a, a parent um, and and we grieve healthily uh, we celebrate their life we, we're counseled and we recover well what I'm talking about is trauma that is suppressed either because we don't recognize it as trauma or because we are not in an environment where we can recover. Very obvious um, examples are ab abuse in childhood. Now, 
if we look at the raw statistics, we know that 60% of girls and 40% of boys are sexually abused before they're 15 years old. Uh, we know that much more, much higher numbers than that are physically abused before they're 15. Uh, and we know that for most of these children, they are not in a position where they can express themselves, uh, talk about it, um, work through it and recover. That, that trauma, that horror is squished into their, their soul and their body. Um, we, we know that sometimes trauma can occur in the womb when mum is traumatised by something, um, the loss of one of her parents. Or um, I, I have treated patients whose mothers were pregnant during the bombing blitz in uh, the UK, in London, during the Second World War. And sometimes there were accidents, they were involved in a bombed house, etc. And the influence of that trauma, the chemical influence of that trauma, influenced the baby growing in the womb. And over many years, uh, that person then developed a degenerative disorder, Parkinson's. Uh, in the patients that I saw. Now, we, we understand the chemical process of trauma very clearly. We understand adrenal production. We know that from the work of uh, Professor Bruce McEwen, who's an epidemiologist, that if we are locked into a high stress or traumatic situation, unrelenting for six weeks or more, our body can get locked into cortisol production. So cortisol is our inflammatory hormone. And we produce that when we want energy quickly, along with adrenaline and uh, aldosterone, etc. Now, the negative feedback process is that when we produce cortisol, the hypothalamus should recognise when we have enough and shut down production. But if we're in a constant cortisol production for six weeks or more, our hypothalamus gets very confused and starts to think that cortisol itself is a danger, is an enemy, and calls for more cortisol. So we get a feed-forward system. Now, this ongoing production of stress hormones that is unrelieved if we don't intervene can then start to cause cellular uh, dehydration uh, cell damage nerve damage and long-term degeneration there are many many examples of trauma that we can talk about and as I say the the work of Professor Bruce McEwen, Dr. Jeff Victoroff, um, uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton, uh, and uh, Dr. Gabor Mate are all great in, in explaining technically how this affects us and how this sort of suppressed trauma can create disease. The second 
a factor we need to talk about is environmental toxins. Now, um, as I say, I was born in 1943. Uh, it was a pretty tough time in the world, but the world was relatively clean. Yep, we were dropping bombs and doing all sorts of nasty things, and we had started using some chemicals, particularly good things like arsenic for cattle dip and sheep dip, etc. But over the ensuing years, we have released over half a million neurotoxic chemicals into our environment, often without approval by anyone except the people manufacturing the chemicals. And they're in our agricultural products, in our food chain, in hair products, body product, body care products, in clothing, in cleaning products, um, among many, many others. So we have constant contact with environmental products, uh, environmental toxins. And we know, for instance, quite recently that uh, a particular herbicide uh, called in Australia, it's called Roundup. Uh, I don't know what it's called elsewhere. Um, same name. Is, I'm sorry? It's the same name here. Same name here. Okay. So that has been implicated in many cases of Parkinson's disease because it is highly neurotoxic. And we told that it's something that we should spray on our weeds. I see it on television shows, and I happen to like some of these renovations and gardening shows, but people with no protection, no gloves, no mask, no goggles, no nothing, are busy spraying Roundup and absorbing it through their skin, through their nasal passages, etc. Um, there, there's uh, been a number of uh, research studies showing that cattle dips and sheep dips, so we know about arsenic, we know about DDT, but the successes to DTT are also neurotoxic. So we know that many, many chemicals in our environment can cause the symptoms of disease. There's been uh, a huge amount of research on art an artificial sweetener called aspartame. Now, we know from this research that aspartame is highly neurotoxic, and yet so many people are encouraged to drink diet, so-called diet drinks, or eat so-called diet foods, which or to avoid sugar, so use artificial sweeteners like aspartame. And long-term use of this substance is neurotoxic. In fact, I had a uh, one patient with a very severe ankylosing spondylitis, um, and she drank quite a lot of diet Pepsi. Um, and I didn't give her any particular uh, medicine, a little bit of homeopathic medicine, changed her food choices and persuaded her to give up this particular drink. And within three months, her inflammation had gone and she was starting to move again. So we, we know that these toxins have a profound effect on our body. The third group of causes are chronic infections. And this is rel a relatively recent 
discovery. Uh, we have suspected for many years that there may be bacterial or viral influences on brain and nerve function. Uh, but over the years, and particularly in the last five years since I've been involved in the stealth infection community or Lyme community, we've seen that a number of these um, vector-borne infections can create neuro-like disorders, often diagnosed as Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis or motor neurone disease. Now, we know that, for instance, there are 30-odd species of Borrelia, of which at least 18 can infect human beings, and of that 18, um, some 10 or 11 can cause neuro symptoms, which can be mistaken for neurological disorders. We know that Bartonella hensley can cause um, symptom patterns that can be misdiagnosed as multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or motor neurone disease. Uh, we know that there are others, mycoplasmas, some of the rickettsias, etc., can all create neurotype symptoms that can be mistaken uh, for a specific disease. And so to deal with that, we have to deal with the infection. So they're the three major groups of causes, suppressed trauma, environmental toxins, and chronic infections. You are listening to the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. I'm your host, Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is naturopath Dr. John Coleman. Now, John, you mentioned that it's impossible to diagnose Parkinson's disease accurately, so how can we find the cause or causes for each individual? Yeah, and this is always the challenge. First of all, I think we need to go back to old-fashioned medicine. And those of you who are in my generation, um, and my wife keeps telling me that there's nobody older than me because I'm older than dirt, but I'm sure, there's, I'm sure there's somebody out there in my sort of generation. I can remember when... Our doctor, our general practitioner, would come to the house, and that's pretty unusual now, and they would ask a lot of questions. They would examine us. They would look at the home. They would talk about activities, and then they would make a diagnosis. Then if need be, they might take some blood tests or something like that, but the first action was observing us, asking questions, looking at the environment. So this is our first duty. As a practitioner, I see that my first duty is to connect with the patient and find out as much about them as I can. I know about the disease they say they may have, but I want to know about that individual person. I always send out a questionnaire to people who want to come and see me. It's 11 pages long, and it asks a lot of impertinent questions about um, the, who they are, 
what their symptoms are, what they're taking, who their family is, how they got on with their family, other experiences they've had. Um, I give them a whole list of symptoms that they have to score and there are many questions. Now that 11 page questionnaire gives me the first clues about what can be going on. So is it a chronic disease? Is it a digestive challenge? Is it a, an, an old injury? Uh, is it a combination of these things? So has there been trauma in the background and have they had contact with neurotoxins and, and is there a possibility of an infection? So that's the first thing. Then I talk to the patient. And, and my first appointments are two hours long. So we, we talk through all the answers that they've given me and we, we explore their adventure. And often more information comes out in that exploration. So the history is the first thing. Uh, and, and one of the things I'm very distressed about with modern medicine and modern naturopathy, I have to say, is that there are very brief questionnaires, there are some tests taken, and then a diagnosis made. And often that leads to inaccuracy. Um, so that's number one. Now, another um, device that we can use uh, if we suspect there are environmental toxins, we can use something like a hair mineral analysis or, or a comprehensive hair analysis. Now, hair doesn't tell us what's going on exactly now, but it gives us history of toxic load or toxic ratios in our body. So it can be very useful uh, if we see sets of symptoms in a patient and say, mm, that could be Parkinson's, but we get a hair analysis that says, hey, this person's really high in lead, really high in mercury, really high in cadmium, it could be that if we clear those minerals from the body, they will no longer have those symptoms. So that's very important. And then there's a number of other more specific questionnaires that we can use. And sometimes if, if we suspect that there are infections, there are very specific serology tests and or PCRs that can give us a better indication of if there is in infection. I have to say, though, that the primary diagnostic technique is getting to know the individual patient very, very thoroughly. So aside from that comprehensive assessment, are there then a list of perhaps some simple diagnostic tools that can help like hair analysis? Yeah, well, the hair analysis is, is, is a good one that, that I use. Now, there's another, if, if we suspect that there may be or want to rule out a stealth infection, um, Dr. Richard Horowitz has vast experience in diagnosing and treating uh, Borrelia, Bartonella and associated stealth infections. And he has developed 
a questionnaire that he calls the MSIDS questionnaire, M-S-I-D-S, which stands for um, Multisystemic Infectious Diseases Syndrome, which he believes is a much better name than um, Lyme disease, and I agree. Now, that particular questionnaire, which he's given permission to use, um, gives a numerical score for each individual patient, which then gives us a clue about whether or not there may be a stealth infection. So, for instance, if, if the score is 21 or less, we say probably no infection there. If it's in the uh, mid-20s, mid-30s, we can say here's a possibility we need to investigate further. If um, it's, it's high, you know, over 50, and I've had patients uh, whose questionnaires have been up to 110, 115, um, then we're saying, yeah, there's definitely infection there. Now what we need to do is find out what that infection is and deal with it. So that, that's a very useful tool uh, if we're exploring possibilities. Uh, there's a thing called a challenge test. Again, if we suspect infection, we can give an antimicrobial remedy uh, to the patient at a titrating dose, and when they react to that remedy, that gives us an understanding of is there an infection there? If there is, the intensity and debilitation of that particular infection. Um, sometimes we need to explore particular parts of a patient's history more. So if there's a clue that there may have been some very specific trauma in the past, we need to explore that. And that can be painful and difficult and may require some tools like um, hypnotherapy or uh, some sort of biofeedback technique uh, such as kinesiology, biocom machines, Vega machines. Now, I do not use machinery or biofeedback as a diagnosis or a final answer, but it is and can be very helpful for defining certain areas in a patient's life. So there are a number of other tools. Now, of course, there are blood tests. And I will often ask for a full blood examination to have a look at liver enzymes, etc. I'll call for thyroid hormone tests. Um, uh, I, I might check for vitamin D levels, uh, etc. So often there are blood tests to help us um, define exactly what's going on in that patient's body. Now, putting aside whatever cause might have been determined or detected, are there some general health-giving activities and choices that would be appropriate and that would apply? Yes, I, I think that um, for anybody, well, anybody who wants to be healthy, but certainly people who have some form of degenerative disorders, and I know this is Parkinson's recovery, so let's talk about it, uh, Parkinson's, there are some 
general, shall I say, rules that, in my view, are not optional. If we want to be healthy, we make these choices. And the first is around food choices. Now, I don't adhere to a diet, and I'm making inverted commas here. The word D-I-E-T so often has a connotation of giving things up. Well, my food choices don't involve giving things up. It involves choosing foods that will create health rather than disease. Now, again, choosing healthy foods are not optional. We know, again, from, from fabulous research that's still coming out, uh, animal dairy products, with the exception of organic butter and ghee, animal dairy products are inflammatory, increase the risk of Parkinson's disease, increase the risk of uh, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, etc., and therefore uh, interrupt the digestive process and exacerbate symptoms of Parkinson's. We know that grains are inflammatory. That's all grains, even gluten-free grains like uh, oats and millet are inflammatory because there are many other lectins in grains that are inflammatory. So we need to avoid all grains. We can use grain substitutes like quinoa and buckwheat, uh, tapioca, etc., that are seeds rather than grains and therefore not inflammatory. We, we know that we must avoid things like caffeine, alcohol, uh, refined sugars, etc. But we can eat vast quantities of vegetables. And we're so lucky there is a huge range of vegetables available to us. We can eat good quality fruits. We get protein um, and we need good quality and a lot of protein from eggs, Eggs are our friends. Fish, avocado, um, which are fabulous food. Quinoa is the highest plant source, uh, source of, of protein, complete protein. Um, they're really, really good sources of protein. And we can add things like lean, red, young meat, um, organic free-range chicken, organic free-range turkey, uh, and, and in Australia, we, we might want to go for some game meat like, like kangaroo or emu or crocodile. Um, in the States, perhaps a deer. Uh, but so there's a, there's a huge range of foods we can eat. Um, if we need milk-like products, we can use almond milk or coconut milk, um, which, which are great, fabulous, I can tell you. So food is food choices are a number one for getting well. Our drink choices. So the best drink in the world is water. Now please do not drink alkaline water. You know that is a real furphy. I'm not sure whether you know what a furphy furphy is. A myth. It's a real myth. Uh, we need water that is about pH neutral around pH of 7 or even slightly acidic, around 6.8 or 6.9. Uh, 
If we drink alkaline water, that dilutes our stomach acid and therefore reduces our ability to digest proteins and solid foods. So water is a great drink. Now, often we, we want a nice warm drink and the best warm drink, in my view, is rooibos tea. Rooibos tea, R-O-O-I-B-O-S, tea. Often known, also known as red bush tea. Now, it's a South African herbal tea. Um, it is the highest tea source of antioxidants. It has no caffeine and no tannins, and it tastes really good, believe me. Um, I drink it black with a little bit of raw organic honey. Um, some people like to add a bit of almond milk to it, so, but it's, it's a really good drink. Now, other herbal teas are really good, so chamomile, peppermint, um, lemongrass, rosehip, etc. are all really good too. Avoid black tea, avoid green tea, and avoid white tea. Yes, they have lots of antioxidants, but they are caffeinated and they have tannins and they cause adrenal distress uh, and inflammation. And avoid coffee. Um, some diluted fruit juice and vegetable juices are great. Now, other things that are very health-giving. Here are some strategies. All right, meditation. Now, meditation is easy and very natural. You don't have to do a $10,000 course to learn how to meditate. You don't have to sit on a rock wearing a turban saying "Om." There are many, many, many ways to meditate. Uh, one is simply to sit and visualize yourself being well while you're breathing slowly. One that I use often is to stare out of my uh, living room window at my view. Now, I'm extraordinarily lucky. I, I live about an hour out of Melbourne, uh, the capital city of my state. Um, I live in a little town called Lancefield on the western edge, the last street in the town. We've got a little cottage here. And across the road is farmland that cannot be built on. And that farmland extends right across to a range of low hills called the Cobors. Now, that scenery changes hour by hour through the day. And often I find myself just there watching the scenery looking at that view and allowing my body to relax. That's meditation. Uh, we can look at a candle, we can look at a picture, we can listen to gentle, calming music and allow our mind to relax as well as our body. Um, there's a, another technique because I'm going to speak about a strategy called self-love. Because, you know, meditation and self-love produce more dopamine, serotonin, glutamine, anandamide, and anti-inflammatory broadcast neurotransmitters. So these are really important. They're free medication for you. And self-love can involve 
uh, if we're uncertain about how much we care for ourselves, can involve looking into the mirror and looking at that person and saying, John, I love you. Now, you don't have to say, John, I love you, um, because that's possibly not your name. I'm happy if you love me. But whatever your name is, I love you. Use your name, say it out loud, and your brain and your nervous system will get that message twice. The message when you think it, and then you'll hear the voice, and that will be somebody else saying it to you. Now, there's a little strategy that one of my colleagues in New Zealand uses for her patient. She calls it toilet meditation and bathroom love. Every time we go to the toilet, we've got a couple of minutes just to relax. Just to relax. It's a safe place. The door's shut. You know, we're there. We're on our own, we're wanting our body to work well anyway. Let's spend two minutes, take a couple of deep breaths and relax. Then when we get up to wash our hands, we look in the mirror and say, John, I love you. That's it. Toilet meditation, bathroom love. We can do that six, seven, eight times a day and we're producing more dopamine and serotonin and glutamine and anandamide just as we do that. You know, it's so powerful. A lot of people with Parkinson's forget to laugh. And I was one of those back in 1995. And I observed that. I observed that when people would be laughing loudly and I'd know that whatever had happened was humorous and I would not laugh. So I forced myself to laugh. I pretended to laugh. And you know, know what? When we pretend to laugh, we produce more dopamine and more serotonin. Now, recent research is showing us that the vagal nerve, the vagus nerve, is profoundly involved in the process we call Parkinson's. What we've discovered over the last few years is that we produce 70% of our dopamine in our gut and 90% of our serotonin in our gut. Now, that was known and then ignored because our professional said, well, look, we're only interested in dopamine in the brain. But what we're discovering now is that of all the signals traveling through the vagus nerve, 80% of them are going up from the gut to the brain. So in fact, our dopamine and serotonin produced in the gut can travel up through the vagus nerve into the brain. So if we get our gut right, so we're choosing the right foods, we're drinking the right drinks, we're digesting our food and drink, and we're repairing our, our dopamine production with meditation, self-love and laughter, then our job is to get that dopamine and serotonin up to our brain and through the vagus nerve. So singing and dancing improves the function of the vagus nerve. Now, I can hear 
a hundred people now saying, "Oh, I can't sing." Everyone runs away when I sing. I don't care about that. Everyone can sing. All right. We can sing in the bathroom. We can sing in the loo. We can sing to the radio. We can sing in the motor car. We can sing if people are listening. We can sing if no one is listening. Sing along to your favourite music. It's a very powerful repair for the vagus nerve. And in fact, it's a good repair strategy for speech dysfunction. The more we sing, the better we speak. So, so singing is great. And, and I don't mind what your music is, although I'd encourage you to avoid things like heavy metal and Satan metal and stuff like that. We, we want happy music, whether it's, it's jazz or pop music or ballads or classical music or whatever, um, opera, just sing along with it. And one of the things I do is, is make up songs to some of my favourite music. I love classical music. I used to be an amateur classical musician. And, and I have classical music on and I make up words to it and I'm singing about life. Just singing songs about my day and what's going on. Okay, so singing. Sing every day, several times. And dancing. And now there's a thousand people saying, I can't dance. Yes, you can. You can dance in a wheelchair. You can dance if you're a quadriplegic. You can dance on your feet. You can dance in a chair. You can dance anywhere. You can dance by yourself. You can dance with your loving spouse. You can go out to the street and find strangers and dance with them. Might create a new adventure for you. But dancing, again, repairs the vagus nerve. And for those of you challenged with walking and mobility, moving to music improves your mobility. And when I could not walk, so if I attempted to walk, my walk was fascinating, I would fall forward. But if I played music in my head, or when I could, played it out loud, and moved my body to that, then I was mobile. I could dance along when I couldn't walk along. There's a lot of research now on tango improving symptoms of Parkinson's. That's old stuff. And very limited research, but, you know, I'm sorry, Western medicine have got to do limited research because they have limited views. Any form of dancing is good. Do some folk dancing. Do some line dancing. Do some Scottish dancing or Irish dancing or dancing in the chair, as I say. Just dance. Move. It's a normal human function. So laughter, singing and dancing. The other choice that we must make in strategy is to detox. Now, that means detoxing our homes, getting rid of any toxic chemicals, and there's plenty of information out there about toxins in the home, and there's a chapter in my book, Stop Parking, about that, but there's plenty of that other information available too. So we need to detox our homes. We need to detox our personal use products, our shampoo, conditioner, deodorant, um, makeup, 
ladies, you look gorgeous without makeup. There is no healthy makeup on the face of this planet. There is no non-toxic hair colour on the face of this planet. So when we put makeup on, we put hair colour on, we're driving neurotoxic chemicals straight into our brain. All right, so detoxify our body care products. Detoxify, use organic, um, biodegradable cleaning products. And great cleaning products are things like white vinegar, bicarb of soda, uh, eucalyptus oil, tea tree oil, lemon oil, orange oil, things like that. And and a bit of elbow grease, of course, on hot water. now, we can't detoxify the whole world around us, but we can try and avoid the most toxic areas. So, you know, we try to avoid filling our motor vehicle up with petroleum or, or gas, as you guys call it. Um, we, we can ask somebody else if they wouldn't mind doing that and ask them to be careful, even to wear a mask. Um, we can avoid the toxic cleaning aisles in, in the supermarket. We can try and avoid even toxic meetings with people who create depression and or anger in us because that's part of our detoxification. And then we can use, then we can use other um, detoxification products to assist our body. So... Um, We'll talk about supplements, I think, a bit later, but there are things like drinking water and eating good foods and and there are herbal and supplement detox products that can help us clear toxins out of our body. So healthy choices are food choices, drink choices, meditation, self-love, laughter, singing, dancing, and detoxification. John Coleman, you've mentioned three fundamental causes of all degenerative disorders, including Parkinson's. Could you talk some about basic treatment options for each one, that is for trauma, for toxins, and for infections? Sure. So once we've got all our general healthy choices, healthy strategies in place, and then we we need to look at what each individual person needs. So if we have traced some suppressed trauma, there are a wonderful range of homeopathic remedies and flower essence remedies that can assist in that healing process. Sometimes um, counselling, talk therapy, behavioural therapy, etc. can be useful. There are other processes that I used, like um, cutting the ties that bind, and there are details of that on online if you want to look it up. Um, it, but often we can simply use um, homeopathic formulas that will help repair the physiology um, of that trauma and recreate better balance. Uh, flower essences. Uh, a very ancient therapy to assist in turning negative thoughts and feelings to positive thoughts and feelings. And again, 
singing and dancing. Music in general, um, so, so with the exception of some heavy metal, but music in general is very healing. Being involved in music and participating in music in some way is very healing and it can heal trauma. So singing and dancing. Now, environmental toxins, and I, I talked quite a lot about that in my last um, answer, uh, we need to avoid toxins as much as possible. We should never use toxins. Um, and we need to detox. I, I, I'd like to tell you just a very brief story. Um, I, I have a very close friend called um, Nicole Coleman or Nikki Coleman. And no, she's not married to me. Um, that's a different Nicole. But the Reverend Nicole Coleman, I met her in 2004 uh, when she'd been told that she was dying. She was 34 years old, had nine-year-old twins, uh, been diagnosed with a number of degenerative autoimmune disorders and was told there was nothing more than could, that could be done and that she was dying. And she came to a program I was running um, as a sort of last holiday away with her husband. And during that program, we talked about detoxifying homes, using different products, etc. And Nikki took this on board. And when she and Steve went home, they cleaned their house out. Steve did most of it. Nikki was in a wheelchair, bedbound most of the time. Um, and they found, hiding away in their home, three garbage bins full of toxic chemicals, and deodorants, shampoos, conditioners, um, dish detergents, laundry detergents, all sorts of things. So they got rid of those. They sent them off to the toxic waste dump and replaced them with only good quality, biodegradable, non-toxic substances. And you know what? Nikki did not die. She's still alive today. She's fully recovered. She has gone back to work. She was in a wheelchair or in bed when I met her. She now rides a unicycle. She had given up all work and study when I met her. She's completed her PhD. Um, her children are grown and doing well, and Nikki recently bought a hot air balloon, and she's getting her hot air balloon pilot's license. Now, this was the first step forward for Nikki was getting rid of toxins and detoxing her body. So this is really important, and there are... Um, Great formulas we have, um, detox formulas uh, using things like chlorella um, and um, zeolite and um, all sorts of other products. There are herbal detox products. There's the Heal Homeopathic Detox Kit, which is brilliant, um, and Gallium Heal, which is great at cleaning out the cells. There are powdered products to assist in getting fat-soluble toxins out of your cells so that they can be flushed out. So there are remedies available. It's good if you, you suspect environmental toxins. It's good to talk to a natural therapist who is skilled in 
dealing with these because we need to detox gently. Chelation therapy is often too vigorous and we don't want to go into um, high potency detox programs because that can actually cause damage as we dump more toxic waste into your bloodstream that can really overload your liver so it needs to be done gently so seek guidance from a skilled practitioner stealth infections um, traditionally these have been uh, treated with antibiotics and antibiotics certainly have a place in reducing bacterial load but they can't make you well um, there are fantastic herbal formulas uh, available these days that are very potent and in the hands of a skilled practitioner can be more effective than antibiotics and will not damage your body. The ones that I use are Baron White formulas and they're made in California. Actually, they're, they're fabulous products uh, and there are others available too. So Whatever the cause of your disorder, once we find it, we can treat it and give you strategies to recover. You're listening to the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. My guest today is Dr. John Coleman. I'm your host, Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. So, John, how much of the recovery process depends on the patient in one way a hundred percent however the hundred percent includes the decision to seek help so once we discount that 80 to 90 percent of recovery is in the patient's ball court because most of the recovery is about what you do and the choices you make rather than stuff you take. All right, so we can give you drugs, we can give you herbs, we can give you homeopathics, we can give you the fabulous hydration formulas, we can give you all these things to assist your body. However, in the end, it's how you live your life and the choices you make day by day that creates health or creates illness. So if you choose the best food, the best drink, if you choose to sing many times during the day, if you choose to meditate and detox and dance and love yourself, then you are on the way to getting well and you will need less symptom relief from stuff you take. So 80 to 90% is the patient's responsibility in the recovery process. In previous presentations and even in your book, you talk about several therapies in particular, aquas or the aqua hydration formulas and Bowen therapy. Is there any evidence supporting their use for those who have been diagnosed with Parkinson's? Mm, absolutely, there is, yes. Um, now, again, uh, I've just said that most of the recovery process is with the patient, but undoubtedly remedies like the aquahydration formulas and therapies like bone therapy can assist you along that pathway. 
Now, back in uh, the year 2000, we did an open study um, of the patient records that returned to stillness. Uh, now, th this involved 59 patients, so a relatively small study. However, um, the 59 patients had all been definitely diagnosed with Parkinson's disease by a qualified neurologist, in most cases two neurologists, that sort of second opinion. They had definite symptoms uh, and they, most of them were on uh, standard drug therapy. And what all the patients then had to make their food choices, they took the acrohydration formulas, they had uh, Bowen therapy on a regular basis and um, they kept records of what was going on. And over the 12 months, we found that there was an improvement in their well-being, in their symptom pattern of between one and one and a half stages on the Hernanyar scale. Now that's a five stage scale. So their, their improvement was 20 to 25% in one year. Now, now that's enormous. Now, so that was 56 patients improved, two patients did not improve and did not get worse, and one patient became slightly worse. Now, the controls were people who just made lifestyle choices and did not take the aquas or have Bowen therapy and we saw much better improvements in the research group. Um, and th that whole analysis was done by a, uh, by a statistician, not by me by the way, Ecostats was the name of the company. Um, then there have been two small studies done on Bowen therapy and Parkinson's. So again, small numbers of patients, uh, but in each case, uh, the patients made no changes except they had Bowen therapy on a weekly basis. And in each case, over three months, we saw symptomatic improvement with appropriately Bowen. Uh, one of the studies had a massage control, that is, uh, matched patients had massage instead of Bowen, and we saw better improvements. The other open-label study that we did in 2000 and 2001 with a large group of patients, it was over 100 patients, the, the patients each made food choices, drink choices, took acrohydration formulas uh, and meditated and then they made a choice. They could have bone therapy, massage, reflexology, osteopathy, craniosacral therapy or Feldenkrais. And we followed their progress over two years. At the end of that two years, there was a quantifiable difference between those receiving Bowen 
and those receiving the other bodywork. Now, there was improvement in the control group. So the people having osteopathy, massage, um, uh, Feldenkrais, etc., showed some improvement. But the people receiving Bowen made more improvement. So up to one stage on the hernia scale, better improvement. So we need more comprehensive and better quality study. And I spent a number of years, um, I developed a, a charity called the Neuro Recovery Foundation some years ago in 2001. And most of the time we spent trying to find funding for a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled study on the aquahydration formulas. And we were unable to find that funding. Um, the, the manufacturing company, Wild Medicine, was prepared to participate and put money into it, but they are a tiny, tiny company and didn't have enough money to fully fund it. Nobody was interested. It was amazing. Parkinson's associations and uh, around the world just weren't interested. Um, universities, etc. It's like if we weren't a drug company, we weren't going to get it happening. I still believe that there is a possibility uh, and there is an organ organisation out here now called the Practitioner Collaboration uh, practitioner research and collaboration initiative uh, and I'm hopeful that next year once I'm fully recovered uh, I'll be able to get some people together and try and do this um, double blind study on the ACRAs. Um, we also uh, have asked and I spoke at a, a Bowen conference a few weeks back in Cairns and We've asked for um, funding to see if we can get a single blind study for Bowen therapy uh, in a more extensive study. It, it would be very beneficial. But so there is evidence. It's, it's not good enough to be published in Lancet or Nature, but it, it is quality evidence and hopefully we'll get more in the future. Your book, Stop Parking and Start Living, was actually published in 2005 and has received rave reviews. Have you changed your views on any aspects of treatment since that time, since you wrote that book? Uh, yes, I have. Now, I'm still very proud of, of producing Stop Parking and Start Living. Um, I, I wrote it in late 2004, based on my own experience, and, and uh, Michelle Anderson published it. Uh, and it's still, I believe, a very good basic guide to life changes. However, since 2005, there's been some very good research on a couple of aspects. Um, in Stop Parkin, I talk about using goat's milk and sheep's milk and goat's cheese and sheep's cheese and that's that's wrong um, any animal dairy with the exception of organic butter and ghee should be eliminated because it is inflammatory um, that was simply my views then and, and this has changed given the research I've studied since then 
Now, also, back then, uh, I was pretty anti-saturated fats because I viewed them as inflammatory. Uh, but since then, I've done a lot of research on the different types of saturated fats. And I certainly encourage the use of eggs and avocado, which are both saturated fats, and coconut oil, which is a very healthy saturated fat. So we do need some good quality, non-inflammatory saturated fats for brain function and nerve repair. So that certainly changed. And I didn't put much emphasis in Stop Parking on singing and dancing. And I know now just how important those strategies are. So, yep, I'm still proud of Stop Parking, but uh, there have been a few changes. I receive a number of questions from people that read like this. How can I best get off of my medications? Okay. Um, th this is always a ticklish one, and I, I have to give a waiver first in that this has to be a very individual strategy. However, there are some general principles here. The first principle is get well and you won't need medication. All right, so it's no good having the goal of reducing or stopping your medication. That won't work. Your goal needs to be becoming well because as you become weller, if that's a word, you will have less need for medication and need less medication. Okay, so my principle is that, number one, we put wellness strategies in place and my patients must be dedicated to those wellness strategies. And then we start to see improvements in symptom patterns. When we see that, then we can start to look at whether they need their current number of and quantity of drug support. And then we develop a very gradual reduction in drugs. Now, if you uh, have developed sufficient wellness and you feel that it's time to start reducing your medication, please, please, please do it very, very, very slowly, very slowly. If you've been taking medication for six months or a year or three years or 20 years, um, your body will have a certain addiction to it. Now, remember that, you know, I, I think that the levodopa drugs are by far the best, by far the safest and the most effective. Um, however, the longer we take them, the less dopamine our body will produce. And the strategies we're using in our health program is to increase our own endogenous production of levodopa and serotonin and glutamine and anandamide, etc. So we need to be very kind to our body. So as we reduce our drugs, we need to do it very slowly. And as I say, that's very individual. 
and and frankly it's it's great if you can if you've got an sympathetic sympathetic empathetic doctor or naturopath you're working with get them to supervise your program of withdrawal and and if i'm you know when we're talking slowly um that can be if somebody if for instance you're taking uh, 100 milligrams of lipodopa four times a day um, you would take perhaps 100 milligrams three times a day and 50 milligrams once a day for three or four weeks and then you take 100 milligrams twice a day and 50 milligrams twice a day for another three or four weeks and so on and observe all the time you know if there's any increase in symptoms then you take a little more for a while and and ramp up your healing program your meditation your dancing your singing um you know your jigging and jogging uh you 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 ramp that up and then try reducing it slightly again so it's a slow process but you can once you become well enough and are dedicated to that process, you can start to reduce your medication slowly. There's quite a bit of discussion about the Mediterranean diet for individuals diagnosed with Parkinson's. Do you think that this is the best diet for a person to consider? Um, no, I don't. Uh, I'm, I have grave doubts about the, the Mediterranean diet and the research that supports it. Um, now, let's be frank. Uh, a good quality Mediterranean diet is better than a bad quality New York diet. Um, so, And yes, there are some emphases in the Mediterranean diet on the use of fish and the use of olive oil, which are extra virgin olive oil, which can be quite healthy. However, there's some disadvantages. So the Mediterranean diet uses a lot of grains. It uses dairy. They cook at high heat with olive oil, which cracks the olive oil and so it becomes carcinogenic. So there are a lot of disadvantages. I don't ascribed to any particular diet. I guess if we had to look at the definition, the closest would be a paleo diet. But even that is a misnomer because nobody today can actually eat a paleo diet simply because we can't get paleo food. You know, we, we don't have access to mastodons or saber-toothed tigers to slaughter and eat. We don't have access to the fruits and vegetables um, and many of the herbs that were available back 4,000 years ago, let alone 100,000 years ago. Because we've deliberately bred vegetables to be sweet and juicy rather than hard and bitter. We've deliberately bred our fruit to be sweet and juicy instead of hard and bitter we deliberately breed our animals to be fatty and tender instead of lean and stringy so we have created foods that are far less nutritious 
than they were 4,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago. So what we need to do is create food choices and a lifestyle that gives us the best nutrition from what we've got and from time to time supplement uh, to try and make up the deficiencies. So no, let's forget the Mediterranean, Mediterranean diet and forget the research. It's very biased. John, what is your website URL address? Uh, my website is www.returntostillness.com.au. And how can people get in touch with you? That's probably the best way. Um, there's a contact us uh, icon on that website, and that, that kicks straight back to my email address. Um, or if you're in Australia or wanting to make a phone call, you can call me on 03 and leave a message with your name and phone number and what you'd like to talk to me about. There's been quite a bit of research that uh, purports that coffee is protective against Parkinson's. What's your spin on that? Um, I, I, <laughs> I have grave doubts about this research also, and I've read a great deal of it. I want to just diverge slightly. Many years ago, uh, I did a research paper on Parkinson's for my studies. And one of the things I looked at was the research that showed that smoking cigarettes was protective against Parkinson's. Now, we all know that smoking cigarettes is probably not the brightest idea that someone's ever had. Um, but then I looked into that research and what it purported to say was not what it actually said. What it showed was that people who smoked cigarettes displayed Parkinson's symptoms later than those who didn't. And then when we looked at the mechanism of nicotine, we found that the nicotine actually occupied dopaminergic receptors and fooled the body into thinking it had more dopamine than it actually had. But the nicotine didn't do the dopamine job. So there was a reduction in the appearance of symptoms over time. So in fact, we were, and I was a heavy smoker, I have to say. Um, we were destroying our body while fooling ourselves into thinking we were healthier than we were. Now, coffee does a similar thing in a different way. Coffee, um, particularly caffeinated coffee, which is what they're talking about, actually stimulates adrenal production. Now, remember, uh, when we go back to causes, we're talking about suppressed trauma, which causes this overstimulation of adrenal hormone production, and that causes inflammation, etc. Now, that's what coffee's doing. However, um, if we're drinking coffee, and they're talking about four to ten cups of coffee a day, we've got a constant adrenal drive happening uh, that is 
disguising what's happening in the rest of our body. So it's, so it's fooling us. Now, we know that drinking coffee creates hypertension. It can create um, anxiety, panic attacks, uh, psychoses, etc. And I'm talking about largest quantities here over a long period of time. So I know that, uh, and I speak with many people who have Parkinson's symptoms who drink coffee because they say, but my symptoms reduce and I feel better. And yes, that's understandable because what they're doing is driving more adrenal output to give themselves a false energy. All right. So in due course, what will happen is that they'll collapse from another cause. They'll collapse from adrenal exhaustion, from nervous breakdown, from heart attack, uh, stroke, or something of that sort. And when we do an autopsy, we'll find that there's been Parkinson's progression disguised by this adrenal driving happening. So it's a pretty dangerous sort of publication, unfortunately. Um, the, the population study on coffee that I was looking at recently uh, looked at total mortality and said that, hey, coffee drinkers die less often than uh, people who don't drink coffee. Mm. Um, the, the fact is, folks, that we're all going to die at some stage. Um, we haven't quite beaten that one yet. However, what that research didn't tell us was what other choices coffee drinkers made. Now, I, I worked with... Uh, in my days of drinking coffee, I worked with a whole lot of heavy coffee drinkers who also were very exercise conscious, drank a lot of water, ate a lot of salads. Um, in fact, they made quite good food choices and quite good lifestyle choices other than the fact they drank too much coffee. But the research hasn't analyzed that they haven't looked at other other lifestyle choices um, so it's it's a it's very doubtful research very dodgy research actually if I produced research like the coffee research or the cigarette research I would be condemned as a quack but because doctors have done this you know it's all must be good so avoid coffee Avoid coffee enemas, um, avoid cigarettes under all circumstances, and uh, look for better food choices. I want to ask you to cut to the chase, John Coleman. What are your top tips for moving forward towards good health? Okay, number one, recognize and know that you can be well that you deserve to be well and that wellness is our natural state of being. Illness is something that is artificial and or being imposed on us. <laughs> then start making your lifestyle and food choices. And we've talked about that a lot today. 
this is the first step once you've got your head in the right place. <clears throat> food and lifestyle. So food choices, drink water, get rid of toxins, etc. Then what I call the three L's, love, laughter, and meditation. These are the three keys to wellness. All right. We know that self-love, laughter, meditation, all, all produce more dopamine. They all produce more serotonin. They all create calmness. They produce endorphins, so reduce pain. And then go on a journey of discovery. You know, this is your journey. And you might end up writing your own book. You know, I, I wrote my story in, in Shaky Past that you'll see on my website. Um, that's my story. It doesn't have to be your story. You know, you're, you are each beautiful, wonderful, perfect individual people. So if you have a diagnosis, forget the disease, look for the cause, know you can be well, make the changes required, love, laugh and meditate and go on a wonderful adventurous journey. John Coleman, on behalf of the thousands of listeners of Parkinson's Recovery Radio, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to offer this extensive and fascinating preview of what it really takes to be able to find relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. It's been my great pleasure, Robert. It's always fantastic to be involved with your great work there and to speak with all these people that, that I can't meet personally, much as I'd love to. Um, but, you know, it's just been wonderful to be here and talk to you. As it has for me, John. Thank you so much. And that's what's happening here on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact you have listened to this fascinating interview with Dr. John Coleman, that you indeed are on the road to recovery. This is Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. Connect with us at parkinsonsrecovery.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good day. <laughs>